Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour together, commercial free, as we are every weekday uh, and have been for 27 years. And uh, all we do for the whole time is take your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, you're welcome to call and we will uh, try to get to your call and talk to you about that. If you are uh, in disagreement with the host on anything, maybe you're not a Christian and you just disagree with Christianity and the Bible, or maybe you are a Christian and you disagree with some point that has been made on the program, we always allow a balance of comment here. So if you want to call up, we can talk to you as well. The number to call is 844-484-5737. Now, it looks like the, the lines seem to have just filled up, so if you uh, call now, you probably will not get through, but if you call in a few minutes, that could very easily be uh, otherwise. So the number to have on hand is 844-484-5737. And uh, tonight, actually just a couple hours after we go off the air, I am involved in a, uh, a debate with a dispensationalist covering a lot of different questions. Uh, I, I found out from the moderator we have about five minutes each to speak about each of these questions. There's like six questions. Now, I have to say, each of these could easily be a complete debate, a full-length debate in, in themselves. So this is going to have to be a marvel of brevity. But, but here's, here's the questions that we'll be debating uh, the land promises made to Israel, are they fulfilled or not? Is Jesus the only seed of Abraham, or are the descendants of Abraham also the seed? Uh, in Galatians 4, 28 through 31, are the Jews the children after the flesh? Uh, fourth, uh, who is the Israel of God? I had a whole, probably a couple hours debate on that with a brother once. Who is the Israel of God? Uh, the next one is, what does all Israel will be saved mean? Of course, a reference to Romans 11.26. And will there be a future temple? So, six subjects. I think we get a half hour to talk about all six, so it's about five minutes each. Then there will be a Q&A at the end. This is going to be streamed to YouTube. And if you'd like to watch it on YouTube, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and go to the tab that says Announcements, and scroll on down to today's date, which is Friday, uh, February 16th, and you'll see the YouTube uh, link to, uh, to, to watch that debate. Now, that's going to take place at 5 o'clock Pacific time tonight. And uh, so that's just a couple hours after we go off the air. 5 o'clock Pacific time. If you're in a different time zone, uh, make the adjustment and join us for that live stream. And um, also tomorrow is the third Saturday of the month. You might not have needed me to announce that. But what you might not have known is that the third Saturday of each month, we have a couple of meetings in Southern California. Uh, one is a men's Bible study in the morning here in Temecula. And the other is uh, an evening meeting in Buena Park, which is not just for men, but for anybody. And we're going through a different book of the Bible every time we meet. I believe we're on Second Timothy tomorrow. I have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure we went through First Timothy last time. So, um so there we go. That's tomorrow. And you can find out where and when those meetings are. Also, at the same place I told you before, go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, under the tab that says Announcements. Now, let's go to the phones and talk to Paul from Colorado. Hi, Paul. Welcome. 
Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, say, I'm looking forward to your that debate this evening, and uh, I just wanted to make a couple comments on dispensationalism that I've I've noticed, and then I'll take your comments off the air. But something I've noticed is is dispensationalism it, it somewhat uh, denies the authority of the Bible to interpret itself. And uh, also, they seem to interpret the Bible by what's not in the text. So, you know, like in, in Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks about the rapture, they say, because it doesn't mention anything about judgment there, that that must be something completely different than when Jesus comes, you know, in his second coming. But... uh it's just something I wanted to comment on and then hear what you have to say about it. Okay. Well, I appreciate I appreciate your call, brother. I'll talk about that. Uh, first of all, yes, I think that it's a mistake to try to prove a point by what is not said in a particular passage, especially if that thing that is not said in that passage is explicitly said in other places. Uh, for example, First uh, Thessalonians 4 mentions the rapture, but it doesn't mention the judgment. But Jesus mentions raising his people up on the last day in John 6. But in John chapter 12, he says that the wicked will be judged on the last day. So there, the same day, the last day is when the rapture takes place and the judgment. So it's not enough to say, well, this particular passage doesn't mention such and such, and therefore it can't be at that time. Well, you need to take the whole counsel of God. Now, your other statement that dispensationalism doesn't allow uh, the Bible to interpret the Bible, that's not exactly true. I mean, I'm, they do believe that you need to compare Scripture with Scripture to understand it. But here's a, here is a distinctive of their interpretive uh, policy that's different than I believe it should be. And that is they believe you must understand or interpret New Testament Scriptures by reference to the Old Testament Scriptures, especially the prophecies. For example... There are no prophecies in the New Testament about the restoration of the nation of Israel in the end times. You just don't find any reference to it in the New Testament. It's not there. But they do find uh, prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and some other places about God restoring the people of Israel from their captivity and from many countries and building their temple again and things like that. Now, of course, uh, those, those statements in the Old Testament are about the return of the exiles from Babylon, and those were fulfilled over 500 years before Jesus was born. There's nothing there about the end times. But, uh, but because dispensationalists want there to be a, all those things in the end times, they interpret those Old Testament passages that way, and then they impose that, that idea upon the New Testament. And uh, they actually admit that they do this because they say the Old Testament is like the foundation or the, you know, the scaffolding of the house or something. And uh, the New Testament is like the roof of the house. And therefore, you know, when, when you put the roof on, you don't get rid of the, the parts that are below it that were built earlier. Yeah, but that's not really analogy that the Bible uses. The Bible doesn't liken the, the uh, you know, the Old Testament to the foundation of the house. Actually, to, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is the foundation of the house. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, uh, you know, the, the house in the Old Testament was a type and a shadow of things in the New Testament. And Jesus is the fulfillment or the antitype of those things. And uh, the New Testament starts all over with a new foundation. Remember, Isaiah said... Uh, 
the uh, stone that the builders rejected uh, has become the, the cornerstone of a, of a new house. Uh, and, you know, he says in Isaiah also, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a precious cornerstone. Now, it's for a foundation, but that stone is Jesus. That, that passage in Isaiah is quoted by Peter and by Paul in the New Testament as being about Jesus. So Isaiah talks about God laying a foundation, but it's not, not the Torah that's the foundation. It's Christ is the foundation. So I believe that the, the uh, dispensations do have that as a, a flawed starting point for exegesis. They say, okay, we need to take the Old Testament the way the Jews understood it, and then, you know, and, and then they say, and, you know, God can't change that. In fact, uh, Dr. Michael Barnes says, the Apostle Paul can't change that with just a stroke of the pen. Well, no, it's not a stroke of the pen that changes it. It's God's sending Christ that changes it. Christ brought a new covenant, not like the old covenant, says in Jeremiah 31. So, uh, yeah, you've got the Old Testament. It has types and shadows of Christ, but it's not, but, but we're not built on, on the Old Testament. We're built on Christ. So this is where they make that mistake. I think that we need to use the New Testament, which is the more complete revelation, to understand properly the Old Testament. As we, we get our doctrine from Christ and the apostles, and we can see it then back as we read back in the Old Testament, we see those Old Testament passages through that light. Because Paul said that the mystery he preached was not made known to the sons of men in previous ages, but was made known in these last days to the holy apostles and prophets through the Holy Spirit. So he specifically says the Old Testament Jews didn't understand this stuff. It wasn't revealed to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that the Jews to this day have a veil over their mind when they read the Old Testament. They can't see it until they turn to Christ. Uh, so it's evident that for us to say, well, how did the Jews understand these prophecies? Well, let's, let's understand them that way. And then we'll use that as a template to uh, force that upon New Testament teaching. I'm afraid that's that's going backward. <laughs> that's going backward. The New Testament tells us what all that stuff meant. Remember Jesus in, in Luke 24, verse 45, it says he opened his disciples' understanding that they might understand the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures. There were no New Testament scriptures when that was said. So the disciples then were given by Christ the ability to understand the Old Testament, which the Jews and the rabbis didn't have. So obviously the way the New Testament guys wrote and understood it, uh, are authoritative. And the way that it was understood by the rabbis apparently was not inspired. The, the prophets were inspired, but understanding them was not possible until Jesus gave understanding to understand the scriptures. All right. I appreciate your call. Let's talk next to uh, Andrew from Texas. Andrew, welcome. Hey, what's going on, Mr. Greg? Well, I'm doing a radio show. What's going on with you? Hey, I got a question about uh, Isaiah 66. Mm hmm. And uh, it would be hold on. Uh, towards the end of it. Let's go to 66, uh, 18. Okay. And, think, uh, uh, and the only reason I'm asking this question, I've, I actually asked, I called in the Matt Slick show like two months ago mm -hmm. and asked them this question. And the connection was really bad, so I couldn't hear his answer. And I think he said, well, maybe that I'm looking at it, it might be right, you know. But I've watched probably, I don't know, 50 debates what is your question? of Christians, yeah, what Christians is your question? versus atheists. And, well, I, that's what I'm saying. 
Oh. Atheists always say, you know, what happens to people who never hear the gospel? And so my question is, doesn't Isaiah 66 towards the end of it kind of answer that? Um, started 18. Now, how do, you think 18 it, how do you think it's answered there? Well, because whenever you start <clears throat> at, uh, let me hold on, I'm, I'm flipping through my book here. When you start at uh, 57 and uh, at verse 14, it talks about taking the stumbling block away from the Jews. And I think there's two stumbling blocks to me, it seems, in the, in the Bible okay. you got. Let me jump in. Let me devil. jump in here. Let me jump in here. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in Isaiah, but I'm wondering uh, where you think that the verses are addressing the question of what God's going to do to those who've never heard. So that's a very specific question you asked. And you asked if, if that's not addressed in these verses at the end of Isaiah 66. I'm not sure that I see an answer to that question. And I just wondered what, what you see as the answer that's found there. Okay, well, in Isaiah 63, are you familiar with that one? For, for no, we're talking, about Isaiah Isaiah? 60, we're talking about Isaiah 66. I, 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 I get it, but I'm trying to get context. That's all I'm trying to do is get context. Okay, and we're going four chapters back. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead. He, has, he sees a vision, and the, the dude sitting on a horse says, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Right? Okay. And he goes, why are you, why are you covered in blood? And he goes, I've been running through the wine press. I did it alone. And then, and then, uh, and then you come at uh, verse 65-6, and it says, it is written, before me I will not keep silent, but will recompense the recompense unto, unto the bosom. And okay, okay, you don't seem to grasp what I'm asking. I'm asking about what verses you were referring to that speak about what God will do with those who've never heard the gospel. Now, neither of the verses you've given address that question. Do you have a Do you have an answer to that? I mean, I'm curious because I have a lot of people waiting. Absolutely. Go go, ahead. go to verse 19 and 66 mm-hmm. and read that. Okay, I will set a sign among them. Those among them who escape I will send to the nations to Tarshish and Pol and Lud and draw the bow. Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare yeah, my who, glory among the Gentiles. Yeah, so that's talking about the, so, talking about the church, talking about the church going out to, uh, on the mission field, as, of course, has ha- happened and is but, happening as we speak. But we've heard about his glory, and we know about his fame. Right. So I'm, t- I'm talking, I mean, it seems to me like that's what happens to people that's never heard of him. No, 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 no. It's talking about people who have not heard will hear. Now, how will they hear? Because he says, I will send my people among them so to those who have not heard so that they can see my glory. So I, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not saying you're, that it's not a difficult question you're wrestling with. I, I'm not seeing this passage or any of the Isaiahic passages you mentioned as dealing with that specific question. But, I mean, uh, if you do... <coughs> Well, then, I mean, that's okay. I, I don't mind if you see something I'm not seeing there. But I, I, if you ask my thoughts, my thoughts are I don't, I don't see that question really addressed there. I see a reference to the uh, mission of the church to, to spread the gospel among the nations to those who have not heard of him before. All right, let's talk to um, Eric from Houston, Texas. Eric, welcome. Hello, Steve. How are you doing, sir? All right, thank you. Yeah, uh, my question specifically comes from uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen to twenty, mm-hmm. and it's my understanding, if I'm not mistaken, that the word uh, "baptize" refers to simply being immersion, 
And would it be far-fetched for me to believe or think that uh, that could refer to a baptism in the Word of God as opposed to in water? Well, um, I, I wouldn't see it that way here, but you're right. The word baptism does mean immersion, and it doesn't always mean immersion in water in different contexts. For example, Jesus said to his disciples, John and James, when they said, can we sit in your right and left hand in your kingdom? They said, he said, well, can you, um, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? Which apparently means sufferings. And uh, can they be immersed in sufferings as he will? And they said, yes, we can. And he said, well, you will be, but I can't guarantee you those spots. That's my father's to say. So, you know, the word baptize can refer to being immersed in something other than water in certain contexts. Certainly, John the Baptist said that he baptized in water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, those things are not water. You could be immersed in water, or you could be immersed in fire and, and, or in the Holy Spirit. I mean, those are all different ways that uh, you know, the term can be used. Um, on, on the other hand, uh, in Matthew... I, I personally think he's talking about being baptized in water when he says, go and the, go make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. I, I think that the baptizing there is a reference to water baptism uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we have a very similar kind of statement in Mark chapter 16 and, uh, and verse 16 where it says, uh, or 15 and 16, it says, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, when uh, Peter was asked on the day of Pentecost, what must we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be filled, you, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then they were baptized that day. Uh, we know this was water baptism they were practicing because, for example, when Philip evangelized the eunuch out in the desert in Acts chapter 8, the eunuch said, well, here's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? Obviously referring to baptized in water, and, and then he was baptized. Uh, Philip went down in the water and baptized him. Uh, in Acts chapter 10, when the Holy Spirit fell on the house of Cornelius, none of them had been baptized or even had believed before that. But when Peter saw that they had received the Spirit and recognized, well, they must have believed, they must be converted, he said, well, who can deny water to those who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized, obviously, in water. So I believe that this Great Commission in Mark and in Matthew are both referring to water baptism. And we see as soon as the, the Spirit fell and people were saved, the church began to baptize people in water. I'm not saying <clears throat> that one could not speak in terms of being baptized or immersed in the Word of God. Uh, somebody could immerse themselves in the Word of God simply by meditating day and night on it and studying it, reading it all the time, and so forth. But I don't, I don't think it's likely that that is the meaning of baptism in, uh, in Matthew 28, 19. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't think there's enough uh, reason to believe that. But I, I appreciate your call. Um, Thank you, sir. All right. God bless you. Let's talk to uh, Sean from Hayward, California. Sean, welcome. Hi, Steve. Hi. 
Hey, I have a question. Um, have you heard of the Shangji Church out of Korea called, like, the uh, New Heaven, New Earth, and the Promise Pastor is supposed to be there, something like that? I, uh, I, can take I, take I don't, I don't remember. I, I don't remember having heard of it, no. Through them, and um, what I've learned so far is I've been in an eight-month course with them. It's a ten-month course, but after each intro, like intro, we took a test, and that was a figurative language. And then the second is like uh, immediate. We took a test on the parable. Okay, okay. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, I have not, I have not heard, I have not heard of them. Could you tell me something that they believe that you'd wonder? They believe uh, uh, that uh, the promise pastor was here, and that, that the promise what? That the promise what? Pastor John. John, the promise pastor. The promise pastor. Yeah, I've never, I've never John, heard of the promise pastor. Yeah, in the in the Bible, John, Revelation. John, so God gave the scroll to Jesus. Jesus to the angel. Angel gave it to John, and John gives it to the nation, to the people. So where's the promise pastor and in that? He said he's in Korea. Well, I, I don't. I, okay, I don't see. I don't see any reference to a promise pastor in the passage or anywhere in Scripture. So. <clears throat> it sounds like a, a term they made up to refer to their own their own cult leader. I mean, any group that talks that way, uh, you know, they're just not talking the way Christians normally talk, and it's usually. That, but that's exactly the way cults talk. I, I don't know the group to know what their doctrines are, but they talk just like cults talk, and they don't talk like any Christians I've ever heard talk. All right, so that's just me. Uh, thanks for your call. Let's talk to Rhea from Massachusetts. Rhea, welcome. Hey, hey, hey. Can you hear me? Hey. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so I'm in John uh, chapter 11, Gospel of John chapter 11, uh, 24, when Martha says, I know that he shall rise again. And Well, Jesus says, my brother shall rise again, Lazarus. <clears throat> and she says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Um, when she says that, is she talking about a particular uh, Jewish belief at that time about Resurrection in the last day. Yes, um, yes that's the Jewish, I mean, that's are, the are Jewish people, understanding. If it's is it like people were asleep before they rise in the last day, what is the meaning of that phrase? Well, the, the Bible it's talking about the resurrection. The resurrection is when the bodies come out of the graves on the last day when Jesus returns. Um, the, the bodies, according to First Corinthians fifteen are sown or buried in weakness and in corruption and in uh, dishonor and, and so forth. And they are raised in glory and in incorruption. And immor- they're, they're immortal bodies that are raised and glorified. So this is, a, this is, standard, you know, this is the standard Christian teaching. It's always been from the, as, as long as there have been Christians. This is the view that has been held by the Christian church. With the exception of a small group today, called full preterists, they don't hold that view. They hold the view that uh, there is no future resurrection, but, uh, but they are simply you know, not interested in, in agreeing with historic Christianity about things. Now, the Bible very clearly talks about the dead rising in many places on the last day uh, and the last hour. And so that's, that's what's referred to there. Now, you're wondering, uh, you know, does that mean that people sleep until then? Well, not not in a literal sense. Uh, you know, if you look at a dead body 
that person's not asleep, they're dead, that's the difference. But the Bible does use the word sleep as a metaphor for death. And the reason it does so is because sleep, unlike, I mean, unlike most people would think about death, sleep is a, t- a condition that once a person goes into it, you expect them to come out of it again. Uh, they go to sleep and they wake up. So, in other words, sleep is temporary, as death is, because once a person dies, uh, the Bible says they will be, they will wake again, they will come up again. Now, the metaphor of sleep applied to death does not necessarily tell us anything about their mental or uh, subjective condition during death. Some people think uh, that they are unconscious and uh, in that state until you know, from the time they die till the resurrection. That's the view of quite a few people, but I believe the Bible teaches that when a Christian dies, at least their spirit goes to be with Christ and then returns to be in their bodies when they're resurrected from the dead. So, yeah, the Jews had this view, the very same view. <clears throat> the Jews believed that uh, the dead bodies will rise at the last day and that their spirits depart from death from them at death and then will return to them uh, in the resurrection. That's the standard Jewish belief also. But it was also what Jesus taught and what, what the apostles taught. So it is, it is the true doctrine. In other words, it's what the Bible teaches. It's the last day, the rapture? The rapture? Yes, the rapture will be on the last day also. Yeah, the, the rapture and the resurrection happen at the same time. Remember Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 16, that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. So he says the dead, the dead rise first, that's the resurrection, then the living rise next to meet them in the air, but that's all part of one action on the last day. Hey, I appreciate your call. We need to take a break, but we are not done. We have another half hour coming up. There are some lines open now if you want to call in. 844-484-5737. We have another uh, half hour coming up. The Narrow Path is listener supported. You can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and see, uh, see how you can support us if you'd like. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go away. Small is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to life. We're proud to welcome you to The Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Steve has nothing to sell you today but everything to give you. When today's radio show is over, we invite you to visit thenarrowpath.com where you'll find topical audio teachings, blog articles, verse-by-verse teachings, and the archives of all the radio shows. Study, learn, and enjoy. We thank you for supporting the listener-supported Narrow Path with Steve Gregg. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Craig, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. Looks like uh, the lines might be full, though, but you can call back uh, in a little while, and maybe the lines will be open. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. I should announce now again, because I won't have another chance before the weekend, uh, tonight uh, at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time and whatever time that is for you, wherever you might be, I'll be uh, participating in a debate with a dispensationalist on several uh, 
I guess, prophetic kind of subjects. Um, this is being hosted by uh, somebody who has, I guess, I guess he hosts debates regularly. I was not familiar with either the uh, my opponent or with the host, but uh, I was approached about this, and I agreed to it. So at 5 o'clock today, Pacific Time, uh, I will be engaged in this debate, and it will be streamed live on YouTube, which uh, is you can find out how to find it there at our website. Also, if you're in Southern California and want to come to our men's Bible study in Temecula tomorrow morning at 8, or if you're interested in our evening Bible study tomorrow night in Buena Park, you can go to our website and all, all those things, the debate, the morning study, the evening uh, study, those can all be, uh, you can learn all you need to know about those, how to, you know, where they are, what time, and so forth, by going to thenarrowpath.com and, um, and, and checking under announcements. And, of course, I don't want to pile too many uh, announcements on at one time, but next Saturday, not tomorrow, but the following Saturday, there will also be a debate between myself and our friend Max the atheist, and some of you have been waiting for that. <clears throat> the uh, links to that will be uh, posted uh, when we have them. All right, uh, let's go to the phones and talk to Daniel from Cleveland, Ohio. Daniel, welcome. Good evening, Steve. Hi. Hey, question. Uh, <clears throat> when Christ says prince of this world, that's meaning Satan, correct? Uh, yes, I believe so. So when he says when um, the prince of this world was cast out, um, what does it mean? Does Satan have limited role? Like when he states that I've seen Satan's uh, kingdom fall like lightning from the sky, is his power diminished after Christ came? Or does he still have full reign? Or what's your views on that? Well, Jesus said in uh, <clears throat> John 12, I think it's verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. A meaning Satan would be cast out. Now, John recorded that statement of Jesus, and John also wrote the book of Revelation, where we read of the dragon, who is Satan, being cast out of heaven in, in Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 11. And therefore, it's probably the same thing, because John wrote both books, and both refer to Satan being cast out. Uh, in Jesus' statement, does not say where he's cast out from or to what end, He's cast out, but in Revelation 12, it says he's, uh, he's cast out of heaven uh, so that he doesn't get to accuse the brethren anymore. Now, in the Old Testament times, Satan was seen in the role of an accuser, or an adversary of God's people. So we see him, of course, in uh, Job chapter 1 and 2, accusing Job. We see him in Zechariah 3, uh, accusing the high priest Joshua. And so... The, you know, the Old Testament doesn't mention Satan very much, but when it does, he is mentioned as the adversary and, and very much like the image of a courtroom where he's the prosecutor and he's accusing uh, God's people before God of certain you know, of guilt and so forth. So uh, likewise, in Revelation 12, it says that the accuser of the brethren is cast out of heaven. Now, that seems to mean that in the courtroom of heaven, the prosecutor's case is thrown out of court. In fact, the prosecutor himself is thrown out of court. This doesn't necessarily have to refer to a specific geographical movement, though it might. I mean, whether Satan literally was in heaven and now he's literally on earth, I, I believe that's quite uh, reasonable to suggest. But whether it's 
whether it's geographical, whether it's actual movement like that, or whether it's symbolic of his case simply being totally disregarded, and uh, God will not hear him accuse the brethren of her. Why? Well, in Romans 8, it says, Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? So, uh, and it talks about, it goes on talking about Christ is in heaven making intercession for us. So, we have an advocate in heaven, and, and he has shed his blood to cover our sins, and therefore accusations against us are no longer uh, of interest to God. He's not, he's not, the court case is, is, is finished. And the uh, prosecutor has been thrown out of court. This is the imagery that Revelation uses. And I think that's what is also meant in, uh, in, in John chapter 12 when Jesus said that same thing. All right? You there? Yeah, uh, one more question. So is that when he said now the prince of this world is cast out, it's not meaning at that point in time when he's speaking, but... Maybe more in the future. Like, I'm just trying. I've been going back and forth with one of my well, friends. and Yeah, when Jesus said that, he was on his way to the cross. He was referring to what would happen at the cross. Uh, okay. it, says in, it says in Colossians 2 and verse 15 that Christ, through the cross, uh, triumphed over the principalities and powers and made a show of them openly. Uh, so he, he defeated the demonic powers against us at the cross. It says also in Hebrews chapter 2, and verse 14, that Christ uh, partook of flesh and blood himself so that he could, uh, yeah, through death, he could destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So through Christ's death, it is said he destroyed. Now, the word destroy, the Greek word there is katergeo, which means to reduce to inactivity. So through Christ's death, at least certain activities of Satan were canceled out. And I think it'd be probably those accusations activities because that's what's spoken of elsewhere as being curtailed. So, yeah. So the the comment that Christ made about I seen Satan's uh, kingdom fall like lightning from the sky, would you say that'd be like a diminishing of his abilities here? Like would you view that there's more good because the light is coming to the world and that light is in us, that there's more good being done in the world than well, quite, before quite his possibly. time? Quite possible, yeah. That, that's the verse. Uh, that's Luke ten eighteen, where the seventy came back and said, "Lord, even the the demons are subject to us in your name." And he said, "Well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." Uh, that's been understood two different ways. Uh, one way is uh, that Jesus had talked about the uh, the fall of Satan in the ancient past, and that Jesus witnessed it. Another way is that Jesus is saying. Uh, you guys are seeing demons go out of people, and I see, uh, you know, that's just the trickle. The, the flood is, a, the, the dam is about to break. Satan himself is going to be cast out immediately. I see it. You know, I'm seeing it in a prophetic vision. And, uh, you know, I see him falling. And, I, again, I think this has to do with what Christ accomplished. So, uh, yeah, Christ accomplished a victory over Satan, which is variously described in different passages as Satan being cast out of heaven, as, uh, as Satan being uh, triumphed over, as Satan being reduced to inactivity. Uh, and I believe that this very thing is also what Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3 are talking about, when it talks about the dragon, a chain is put upon him, and he's cast into the, the bottomless pit. Uh, Jesus used the expression that he had bound the strong man, 
in his Satan and was spoiling his house when he was casting out demons. So these are all references to Christ's victory over Satan. And different imagery is used in different places, but it it has to do with his defeat of Satan's authority to condemn Christians and also his authority to uh, to keep the nations in blindness because, of course, with the coming of Christ came the Great Commission so that the discipling of all nations is now the project of the church and therefore Satan can no longer keep the nations in total blindness. He, he has no more authority to deceive the nations, as, as it says in Revelation 20. Okay. All right. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. Okay, Daniel. Good talking to you. All right, let's talk to uh, Brandon from Edmonds, Washington. Brandon, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Hi. My question is about 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. Uh-huh. And he's saying, uh, you know, if, you, if, if you're if you praying for your yeah. brothers, that God's going to bring them to life. And I was wondering, I don't want to take it too too much, but it sounds like that. If I'm praying for my friends who aren't saved, I can have confidence that God's going to save them. I don't know if I'm taking too much into that, but I just want to get your perspective on it. Right. It is stated as if it's an absolute promise, although the emphasis of the statement is perhaps to be understood a little less than absolutely. What it does say, he says, if any man sees his brother sinning a sin which, does, which is not unto death, he will ask, and he, God, will give him life for those who sin not unto death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Now, there seems to be a, uh, the interest here in John distinguishing between uh, unbelievers who have sinned unto death, on the one hand, and unbelievers who have not sinned unto death. And he's saying, go ahead and pray for the salvation of them. Now, it says that God will give them life. This might be an absolute promise, or it might be simply saying, in contrast to the other situation, God, God, where God won't give them life, uh, you know, where they've sinned unto death, don't even pray for them, he says. It, it seems like the contrast may, may indicate that the promise is not intended as an absolute, though it could be. Uh, it says if you pray for someone who has not sinned unto death, that God will give him life for, uh, for, for your prayers. And uh, so, I mean, I, again, I, I'm not sure that's to be taken as an absolute because many times people do pray for unbelievers and, and, and they don't get converted. Um, on the other hand, many times people do get converted for, uh, after being prayed for. Uh, I was just listening to a testimony on YouTube uh, earlier today about a person who, you know, was uh, unsaved in his young uh, adult life. And his mother and, I guess, father were praying for him. And he got saved. He now has a Christian YouTube uh, program. But we certainly know of many cases like that. Uh, whether, whether this is an absolute promise that it will always be that way or not, I'm not sure. And the reason, I'm, the reason I'm questioning it, besides the fact that it doesn't always seem to happen, is that the statement is couched in a, in a comment that seems to be emphasizing something different than that. Namely, that God apparently will not give life to people who've sinned unto death, even though you pray for them, so don't bother. But those who have not sinned, go ahead and pray for them, God will do it. That is, if God, if God does it, it'll be to those people and not someone else, and not those who've sinned unto death. Now, what is sinning unto death? Some people think that's an unpardonable sin, uh, but 
I don't know. I'm, I, to my mind, the, the language sounds like it means if they sin until they die. If they sin unto death. Well, if somebody has sinned until they died and never repented, then don't pray for them. They're gone. Um, if they have sinned but not unto death, it means they haven't, they're sinning, but they're not dead yet. So they haven't yet sinned all the way to death. Well, pray for them because there's still hope for them. That's at least how I personally understand that particular uh, instruction. Thank you for your call. Uh, let's talk to uh, Allison from Oregon. Allison, welcome. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, uh, yeah, I just had a question. I'll put them out there and then hang up and listen um, on tongues. And some people teach that there are two different types of tongues, um, even though I think there's just one, the same Greek word for them. But where it is a little confusing is in 1 Corinthians 14, um, verses 2 and 3, yeah. uh, sound like it's tongues are a personal thing and prophecy is for the building up of others, but then in verse 22, it seems to say the opposite. It says tongues are a sign for believers, not for unbelievers, um, while prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, uh, but for believers. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, I, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just addressing that and your thoughts on if there are two different types of tongues or not. Sure. Well, I don't know if there's two different types of tongues, but there's certainly two or three different um, applications of tongues, whether it's different kinds of tongues or not, I don't know, but different uses of them. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, for example, when people spoke in tongues, they were speaking languages that the audience could understand. The speakers could not understand them. The speakers were speaking by supernatural gifting, but the, the listeners uh, were actually the people who spoke those languages and understood them naturally. And this was a sign to those unbelievers that something remarkable was happening, and it got their attention and caused them to inquire and listen to what Peter had to say. So uh, no doubt that's what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 14.22, and he says tongues are a sign for unbelievers. Now, uh, okay, so that is one use of tongues. When they're speaking the language of, you know, at least some of the people in the audience know the language and, and understand it because it's their own language. And it proves to them that since the speaker never learned the language, there's something supernatural going on here. That's a sign to them, hopefully to get them to pay attention to the gospel when it is preached to them. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, most of the time, is talking about different use of tongues. For example, he's talking, to a large degree, about tongues being spoken in the church. Now, um, he does say that if there's no interpreter, then a person can just speak in tongues to himself and to God, and he will edify himself, which is not a bad thing. Certainly nothing wrong with edifying yourself. Edifying means you're building yourself spiritually up. In fact, we're told to do that in Jude, verse 20. It says, build yourselves up. That's what edify means, build up. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Jude says. So, it's possible that he's even referring to tongues there, though he doesn't use the word tongues. But Paul does. And Paul says in verse uh, 4 of 1 Corinthians 14, He who speaks in a tongue edifies or builds up himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, Paul also says in verse 2, as you mentioned, he says, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, this is certainly a different thing than what happened at Pentecost, 
because people did understand. In fact, that was the whole point. They were speaking to men about God. They weren't speaking to God. They were speaking to men in, in, in those men's natural languages. And they were understood. So when Paul says that the person in church who's speaking in tongues speaks uh, not to men, but to God, in other words, it's, it's a prayer. Uh, Paul makes reference to that in verse 14. He says, if I pray in a tongue, pray in a tongue. He prays in tongues. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So when a person in the church is speaking in tongues, this is a different kind of use of tongues than was in the day of Pentecost. It is not intended to be understood by anyone with their natural understanding, and that's why Paul indicates there must be an interpretation, and that's why there's a gift of tongues and a gift of interpretation. And he says in verse 13, Therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And uh, he says a little later on, uh, if anyone speaks in tongues, he says uh, in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let it be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. It's very clear that Paul assumes that without an interpreter, no one's going to understand what's being said. That was not true in the day of Pentecost. There was no gift of interpretation, nor was there one needed, because the audience knew the languages that were being spoken. But in the church, Paul says no one understands him. Uh, he's, you know, he's not speaking to people. He's speaking to God. But on the other hand, if there's a gift of interpretation, that interpreter can access the meaning and share it with people. So I don't know if that's two different kinds of tongues or if it's just tongues being used in different situations. For example, I don't speak any language other than English uh, and, and tongues, I guess. But, uh, but let's, say, let's say I spoke uh, Swahili. Well, if I was in Africa and speaking Swahili, I might well be speaking... Uh, the language of the people there. And let's just say it was supernatural because I, I never learned Swahili. Okay, well, I'm speaking in tongues then to people who understand Swahili. But if I come back to America and speak uh, in tongues in the church and I'm speaking Swahili, well, no one there understands it, so there'd have to be an interpretation. It could be the same tongue. It doesn't have to be a different kind of tongue. It's just using it in a different setting. And if I'm using it in a church where no one understands it, then there needs to be an interpretation. If there's no interpretation, Paul says, just keep keep it to yourself and just pray to God. You can edify yourself, but uh, you're not going to edify the church unless there's an interpretation. So I, I will say this: there's there's no place in the Bible that any writer gives us uh, like anything like a systematic treatment of the subject of tongues. The longest treatment we have is in First Corinthians 14, but it's not systematic. Paul is addressing. Uh, a situation where the people are already speaking in tongues and somewhat out of turn, and he's trying to reel them in and trying to make things orderly in a situation where they're already involved in disorderly conduct. So, uh, you know, his, his teaching there doesn't lay out, you know, a full teaching on tongues, point A, B, and C. Uh, rather, he addresses the issues that are going wrong in the church, which means we don't, in any part of the Bible, have a systematic teaching on tongues. Therefore, we kind of have to read between the lines a bit, and if we don't, then we'll just be ignorant of it. And what I shared with you is what I think, uh, what I think I see in reading between the lines. That'd be my thought. All right. Next in line is Rich from Minnesota. Rich, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. I just let me put the phone off. That'd be great. Hello. Can you hear me now? Yes. Go ahead. 
Hi. Say, um, I just heard you earlier. I'm I'm self-employed and I'm working, but I was listening to you, and you said that uh, dispensationalists uh, rely on the uh, Old Testament uh, yes. for uh, heavily, and you said that that's not really true, but I don't know. I don't know how you can say that because in First Peter, Peter clearly states uh, in black and white un- unequivocally, equivocably, that's probably not a word I should have chose to use, Go ahead. Uh, that the prophets, when they, when they wrote, they knew that they weren't writing for themselves, but that they were writing for us. Right. And Jesus, when they wrote about in Christ. the Olivet Discourse, well, yeah. Peter and, says, and Peter says when, when they spoke of the gospel. Everything is about Christ, though. Everything is about Christ. Everything. Well, all wait, the, wait, wait. All the history, just a, I'm going to let you speak. I'm going to let you speak, but let me stop you there just for a minute. I'll, I'll let you back. I'll let you say it again, but let me just say this. No, many of the prophecies in the Old Testament were not about Christ. There were lots of prophecies about the fall of Babylon and Egypt and Assyria and Moab and the Philistines and things like that, which were not messianic. But Peter says, when they spoke of the glories of Christ... Uh, or when they spoke of the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow, uh, that's when they they inquired and found out that they're not writing for themselves but for later generations. So, yeah, he's talking about the messianic prophecies were, in fact, about well, the present age. Yeah. Um, all the all the all the prophecies about the different countries deal with um, Christ and his people. And the other the other passage that I think about that. Uh, is Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse when he, he tells his disciples, um, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoke of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. Yeah. And, uh, and, and do you so know what that refers to? If I have to, to choose between you and Jesus, I'm going to choose what he's talking about there. That's the way he Well, that, that, that certainly would be the right choice. That would be definitely the right choice. But... If you're going to choose between Matthew and Luke, what are you going to do? Because when Matthew says in Matthew, uh, what is it, verse 20, chapter 24, verse 15, it says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, then you who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains and so forth. Uh, Luke has the same discourse, but Luke paraphrases it so that these strange expressions like abomination of desolation can be understood by the Greek reader, Theophilus, that he's writing to. And instead of abomination of desolation, Luke renders the same statement this way in Luke 21.20. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. The abomination that causes the desolation of Jerusalem is the Roman armies coming, as according to Luke 20, 21.20. Uh, so you might want to check that out. So, you know, if, if you thought that the abomination of desolation was uh, a reference to something happening in Israel in the end times, well, Luke doesn't agree. Luke said, it's uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know its desolation is near. That did happen, by the way, in 70 A.D. And Jesus himself in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and, and Luke 21, which are all parallel passages, he said, this generation will not pass until all this comes to be. So uh, that generation didn't pass, as a matter of fact. Jesus began that chapter by predicting that not one stone would be left standing on another that would not be thrown down, meaning of the temple. And the disciples said, well, when will this be? And what sign is there going to be about this coming? And, uh, and Jesus said, well, uh, you know, as far as when it will be, this generation will not pass before it happens. And as far as the sign goes, you'll see the abomination of desolation, which Luke interpreted 
as Jerusalem surrounded by armies, which were Roman armies. And so Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. There can't be any doubt about that if you read the passage. And, uh, and so he's not talking about the end times. Uh, I'm not sure what you would find in the first 34 verses of Matthew 24 that would speak of end times. Now, I do think that after verse 34, he does mention, you know, that the heavens, uh, heaven and earth is going to pass away someday, but his words will never pass away. But he said, but of that day and hour, no one knows. In other words, when, when the end of the world will come, well, no one knows that. He does know something about when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. It'll be in that generation. But as far as when heaven and earth will pass away, no one knows that. And so he goes on and talks a little bit about that uh, for the rest of the chapter and into chapter 25. So that's, that's how I understand it. So it's not a matter of you don't have to believe me or Jesus. Why don't we just believe what Jesus said? Uh, as it's understood by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that would be, that way you wouldn't have to pick between me and Jesus, because I say the same thing they did. Yeah, hello. Hi. Hello, you turned me off there for a while. Yeah, that's uh, and why I, don't I know speak why I did a little bit. Yeah. You don't know why? Well, I'll do it again. So, you see, the reason I do that is because when you're talking and you don't let me talk, and I start talking, you just keep talking, I think, well, I think before we run out of time, I should have a chance to answer your question. And if you don't want me to, well, then don't call, because that's what I do here. I appreciate your call. Thanks for joining us. And you can call again uh, Monday if you want. We can continue this discussion. Likewise with the rest of you. Sorry you didn't get on. We've had uh, too many calls today to get them all on. But uh, there's always Monday. Well, there may not always be Monday. Maybe Jesus will come back before then. But probably there will be a Monday. And we can get to some of those calls that didn't, uh, didn't get on today. We, uh, we have this debate coming up in two hours from now, uh, which you can find out about. I'll be debating a dispensationalist, and uh, that's going to be, uh, well, you can go to YouTube and listen to it. Go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Look under announcements, and you'll see what's happening, how to get onto that YouTube channel, and also about our meetings tomorrow in Southern California. The Narrow Path is listener-supported. Our website is thenarrowpath.com if you'd like to help us out. Have a good weekend. God bless.